0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 155 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest this week is Bob Stasio, he's the global cyber threat leader at DuPont, a global Fortune 500 company with around 35,000 employees. He shares his professional pathway, starting in the U.S. Army, with stops along the way at NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, and private sector companies like Bloomberg and IBM. We'll get his take on threat intelligence, and why he thinks automation is one of the key components to future success in securing organizations both internally and online. Stay with us.
0: Kind of got into cybersecurity by accident. Uh, <laughs> I started my career in the military as a signals intelligence officer uh, starting back in 2004, and I kind of came up when the Iraq war was kicking off, and I had a lot of focus and training in the intelligence community, uh, mostly doing signals intelligence work, which was really rapidly at that time converting from your classic signals intelligence from a Cold War perspective into the more modern uh, digital era. So I kind of was in the right place at the right time. And that afforded me the opportunity to move from this uh, community that was moving from a traditional signals intelligence uh, paradigm into this cyber world. Uh, we didn't even have a term for it at the at the time. Uh, got kind of plucked out of the tactical military after my deployment to iraq where i I was in the surge and we did a lot of uh, counterterrorism signals intelligence work in the surge in iraq and i got moved in to help build out cyber command u.s cyber command uh, Hmm. back in like 2009. so yeah around 2009 i got pulled out of the tactical army and got put into kind of the nsa architecture to help set up what was now u.s cyber command we didn't even have a name for it at the time Uh, And I got to go from a very tactical level where I was boots on the ground working with infantry officers to help track down uh, terrorists in Iraq to now working at a very strategic level. I got put on the commander's action group at NSA, uh, National Security Agency, working with the director uh, on on the staff to kind of help build out this very strategic vision of what Cyber Command was going to be. Uh, and it was a very interesting opportunity. And uh, I was the low man on the totem pole. <laughs> I worked for some uh, amazing officers that i that I worked with there, actually one of the one of which is now the current director of the NSA, General Nakasoni, who yeah. was uh, a- excellent person to work for. Uh, but I helped them out uh, to produce uh, the output we needed to stand up what became u s. cyber Command. So that was kind of my introduction. Um, and then eventually, I got moved into what became the Army's cyber unit at NSA, and I was a company commander for that unit, which was an amazing experience to kind of see the tip of the spear for the military, for the Department of Defense in cyber intelligence collection. Uh, It was a very interesting job. Uh, The stuff that we would get, the intelligence we would gather would very rapidly go to the highest levels of the government. Uh, so it was a very important job and it was a really interesting perspective. Uh, so, so I did did that for about the first 10 years of my career was kind of the government service side. And then the last 10 years have been more in the private sector. So I initially left the government, went into the private sector and started my own company initially uh, to kind of help bring some of the methodologies that we saw in the government and from the intelligence community into the private sector and that that was initially called cyber intelligence or cyber threat intelligence and there again there wasn't really a name for it at that point either but I helped companies stand up these cyber threat intelligence units uh, stand up these particular programs um, so did that for a couple of years and eventually was hired inside at uh, Bloomberg uh, in New York to stand up Bloomberg's uh, cyber threat intelligence unit there uh, and that global team uh, which, Uh, led me to work at IBM. Uh, So I I decided to kind of take a little change in my career track to go work at IBM as a product manager for an intelligence product, uh, a a product that I actually used when I was in the military. It was called uh, IBM I2 Analyst Notebook. And it was uh, an analytical platform that we used to find terror cell networks, but IBM wanted to transform it into something they could use to fight cyber threats. So hmm. IBM hired me as a product manager to help that transition, which is really interesting. And uh, I thought it was a great experience to learn how software is developed and also how to apply it to different use cases in, in the private sector. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years did, and then, uh, did a, a short transition into the investment community where I worked, uh, to help invest in new emerging cybersecurity startups, uh, and which then led me to my job now at DuPont. So <laughs> I've been yeah. at DuPont, DuPont for uh, about six months now, and I'm, I've stood up DuPont's internal, essentially, security operation center and uh, what we call the cyber threat management team, which is kind of this new and interesting concept of uh, what I would call like incident response 2.0.
1: Well, um, give us some insights. What is your day-to-day like then at DuPont? What sort of challenges do you face there?
0: My first challenge was to stand up a new team. Uh, I was pretty much the first person to come on and stand up the team internally. So I had to be a bit of a player coach in the incident response world, which I I think I still am. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I started off doing a lot of the incident handling myself and also building out the team at the same time. Uh, but now we actually have a really great team that has been assembled, and we're working through a lot of the different use cases. But day-to-day, it's essentially uh, doing the the level two kind of network monitoring. And, and I think the term cyber threat management and what we're doing is this new concept where uh, you, you kind of have a little bit of the reverse in your setup of your personnel, where historically you had a lot of level one responders, like uh, uh, the majority were level one people, and then you had very few level two, level three responders. We're kind of the opposite. We have more level two and level three and very few level one, and we kind of outsource our level one. Uh, And what we do is we kind of triage the alerts. So we have a lot of artificial intelligence and algorithms in place and machine learning to triage the alerts that are coming in from this federated level one. And only the really important things bubble up to my team, and they then look at those incidents and respond to them. And and because we do a lot of this filtering and triage on the front end, really everything we look at is important, and there's very few false positives. So kind of day-to-day, it's managing the team that's responding to these incidents, and we do all types of incidents from business email compromise to fraud to download uh, data loss prevention, to your traditional cyber incidents. Uh, and and that, it's just managing that process day-to-day, uh, along with the other administrative stuff that I do, uh, keeping yeah. the vendors in line and things like that. So that's a bit of the day-to-day.
1: I mean, it strikes me that with a, a company as large as DuPont and as many different things that uh, that, that business touches, that, that's, a, that's a lot to keep track of. Um, how do you go about setting priorities? Very good question. Uh, Yeah, there's a
0: lot to keep track of from the various locations we have around the world. We have offices and manufacturing facilities in Asia and Europe and the United States. Uh, We also have different PCN or SCADA networks that exist within our research centers and our plants. So it's it's very difficult to do that. Um, And again, what we do to prioritize our interest in our day-to-day is using a lot of uh, machine learning to do that. So we have quite a few systems in place that do what I would call alert triage, and they prioritize things very simply into a low, medium, high. And we have certain parameters around high alerts need to be looked at within a couple hours, Uh, medium alerts need to be looked at within at least 12 hours, and low alerts are kind of handled more uh, in bulk or looked at look for trends. So we use a lot of... uh, automation if you will to do the prioritization so we only look at the most uh vetted and real alerts that come onto my team
1: and and what is your uh take on threat intelligence i mean how does that play into the work that you do there
0: yeah threat intelligence is really vital and i'll I'll give you a little bit of an, an anecdote uh when i first started we had a pretty high uh mean time to respond so meaning when we had an alert come in, it took uh, quite a bit of time to mitigate it or to remediate it. Uh, Once we started using threat intelligence to help us understand what the severity of the threat was, get a little more context around it, we reduced the mean time to respond by about a factor of 10 just from that alone um, Mm -hmm. and not even including automation or anything else. So I I look at an incident when you respond to it in really three steps. The first step is confirm or deny there's an issue. The second step is determine scope and scale. And then the, the third step is remediate and kind of get back to normal. Um, on the first step, uh, to, to determine, confirm or deny if it's a false positive. Threat intelligence is absolutely vital there, right? You can't do any of the other steps unless you confirm It is an issue. It really is an issue. And also the wrap some context around it. You know, is this just a random drive by malware or is this a advanced persistent threat trying to get into my network? And that'll determine how you respond to it, how much time you spend on it and how much effort you want to put against a particular alert. So threat intelligence is really the linchpin that helps with that first step and and subsequently allows you to do the other two steps.
1: You know it's interesting to me that um particularly with folks that I speak with who have some background in the military, um, they really value that experience. they They tend to say that you know that experience has really brought them a, a lot of uh, specific skills to the work that they're doing today. Is that also the case for you? Absolutely. yeah. I, I think for a couple of reasons. One, as an
0: officer in the military, it allows you to get leadership experience at a very early age. Uh, you know, At the time, I didn't really appreciate how <laughs> how important that was. But when I was a 22-year-old second lieutenant graduating from college, I was put in charge of a nearly 20-person platoon of signals intelligence analysts. So you, you kind of understand how to run an operation, run an operations center, deal with issues, prioritize at a very early age, which I'll take with you later in your career, uh, which sometimes if you haven't been in the military, you don't get that experience till you're in your late 30s or early 40s uh, for your first time. So I, I really value that. Uh, and also there's, you know, just the discipline and process put in place. But the other thing it provides is this ability to operate in an environment with very little information. And I, I think you've had on your program before Chris Crummy uh, mm-hmm. from the X-Force Exchange. Um, I actually used to work for him uh, that was my last role at IBM. I worked at the uh, X Force uh, Center, the uh, uh, the CTOC Center. It, well, we used to say in that experience that uh, people in the military or first responders understand how to operate an environment with little information, so you can make decisions with very limited information and not wait, right? So, whereas hmm. if you look at some way people are trained in the private sector, maybe somebody who had gotten an MBA, for example they're trained, uh, you know, somebody who would say works at like BCG, Boston Consulting Group, they're trained to do this really deep introspective analysis on a topic and come back and write a 30-page report on, on their findings. Well, in the military environment when you're at in, in a wartime setting or you're in an intelligence operation, you don't have time to do that. You have to look for the early indicators and trends of something going on and extrapolate and make a decision very quickly. Uh, and that's what we used to see when we were running simulations at the IBM uh, threat center, but I also find it's very useful in my day-to-day life. That's pretty much what I deal with every day. I have to see the little bits of information, little bits of puzzle pieces uh, as an incident is forming and make very quick decisions. So those are really the two areas that the military truly helped me with and I've taken to my career as it's gone forward.
1: Now, does does that also apply to the culture that you have that the culture that you set when it comes to things like accountability? Because, as I would imagine, you know, like you say, you know, it's easy for folks to be paralyzed by indecision, um, and I suppose part of that comes from the fear that if they make the wrong decision, then they're going to be punished for that. Um, I would imagine in, in the military, when you're when you have to make those decisions, and they could be life or death decisions. Um, If you make the right decision, if you make the wrong decision, there's a different framework for uh, evaluating after the fact as to how those decisions played out. Is that something you bring to you to your team at DuPont as well?
0: Accountability is important, but I think you touched on an interesting point as well. It's not so much the accountability for decisions, but it's giving people the leeway, the wherewithal to make decisions without guidance from higher. Um, so a, a good example of this is in World War II, right? So, so the invasion of Normandy. Uh, one of the reasons w- that were credited for the United States being so successful, or the Allies being so successful, is when we hit the shores of Normandy, and we lost all communication with higher. There was there wasn't really a good way for those troops to get in contact with the chain of command it was credited to the soldiers on the ground the non-commissioned officers and the officers on the ground the low-level people that made rapid decisions in this time of crisis without waiting for guidance and they just kind of pushed forward and they knew the intent and they accomplished the mission and if you contrast that with the german side uh, there's been a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot written on this. Uh, in the German side, they were kind of frozen. They were a very hierarchical structure. They had to wait from guidance from uh, Adolf Hitler and and the chain of command and his high level generals for them to do anything. And they delayed the movement of several reinforcement divisions uh, to Normandy, which could have, which basically caused them to lose that battle and obviously turn the tide of the war. So that's i think it's not so much even the military it's the american military the american military tr- empowers people at the lowest level to be leaders you know there's a, there's a saying we use lead follower get out of the way um but it empowers mm-hmm. even the lowest level ncos uh to make a decision and and to trust it and go with it instead of be frozen and wait for guidance from higher so it's not so much there is accountability but it, it's almost there's an environment that allows you to trust your gut and trust decisions that you need to make within your own group to be effective uh, to to move the operation down the road.
1: For that person who's considering uh, entering this career, maybe they're they're switching uh, from a from a different line of work or uh, coming up through school or their education. Uh, What sort of recommendations do you have in in terms of uh, the things that are going to best prepare them to enter the workforce?
0: I I would say if you can do any type of government service on the front end of your career, I would try to do that. You know, and I I was in the military. I was in the Army. I really value that experience. That's not the only place you can go. You can serve in a lot of different places in government or the intelligence community um, in, in a cybersecurity capacity. But working in that environment uh, gives you so much on the front end of your career, if only just to get training. Um, One of the things I notice in the difference between the government and the private sector is when you get hired in the private sector, you're expected to know your job day one, right? I'm not going to hire somebody just to put them through, you know, $50,000 worth of training. But in the government, and especially in the military, I was probably put through $500,000 Five hundred to thousand to a million dollars worth of training in the beginning of my career. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's invaluable, right? I, I learned so much uh, from doing that, and it really sets you up for success later on in your career. So I would say, you know, you might sacrifice a little bit of pay on the front end. It may be slightly less pay in the government versus that, you know, the Google or the Cisco recruiting you. Um, but if you could sacrifice that for a few years and get that really valuable experience of training and leadership that you, you can't get that uh, later, right? You can't go back and do it again. So that would be one of my biggest recommendations to people looking for a career in this space. You know, Some of the challenges we deal with today in the private sector, you, you know, we always have to be very cognizant of the budget that you're spending uh, on cybersecurity. And in my particular space in incident response and security operations, it could be one of the more expensive areas because there's a lot of headcount or potentially a lot of headcount. Um, and I, I think you, people in my field need to balance uh, the number of people with automation. I, I think I, we've seen a start of a drive into automation and, uh, and playbooks in incident response, but I think we need a lot more of it. Uh, I think you need to kind of balance the capability of your personnel with uh, automation and things like threat intelligence to get to a decision sooner and faster and reduce your mean time to respond. Uh, and I th- think people need to drive that a little bit more than relying on kind of how we used to do things in the past where you have these big security operation centers with hundreds of people and round the clock uh, monitoring. Where you have to move towards, you know, maybe having a very solid, excellent, uh, higher trained staff and automating areas where you can and maybe even moving to an environment where you're not doing 24 seven monitoring, you're doing triage alerting. And treating it a little bit like the medical profession, because in the medical profession, you have emergency rooms, which are not necessarily manned by doctors or or they're not manned by some of the higher um, value specialties. Right. So a cardiac surgeon, cardiothoracic surgeon is not going to be sitting in the emergency room waiting for somebody to come in with a heart attack. Right. Hmm. The cardiac surgeon is going to be on call. And if somebody does come in with a heart attack, there's a list of an on-call person and they'll be called in and they'll, and they'll handle it. That's a, kind of the attitude we have to get into, right? You have highly trained surgeons that are are doing this work, that working more of a livable nine-to-five environment, what we all want to do, um, because they're you know more mature professionals, later career, and then having more of this monitoring, automation, and on-call for when they need to come in and handle alerts. So... Uh, I, I'd like to see people start to think about that, and that's that's what we're doing, and I think it's been very effective so far.
1: As you shift towards automation, or as you embrace automation, um, how do you spot check it? How do you do regular you know audits to make sure that you're getting what you expect out of it?
0: That's a really good question. I actually have a person full time dedicated to doing the spot check, and, and I'm not even including. My engineering team. So I have an engineering team that does the setup and maintenance of various tools, but I have an analyst that is pretty much full time doing the optimization, the playbook development, and the spot checking of our automation. Uh, And it, it is a dedication to put one person on it, but you really need it. And I've seen it become very effective over time.
1: Our thanks to Bob Stazio from DuPont for joining us. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.